Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're a human being and you're not perfect. And you're going to get things wrong at times. And uh, you're not always going to get the best marks. And even worse than that, sometimes you might not always treat people in a way that you're proud of. And you're a human being and, you know, you're going to make mistakes. And so that's, that's okay. And so I think, I think that the thing about self-critical thoughts is being able to bounce back from them quickly in terms of your behavior. Because often self-critical thoughts come along and then you have wasted a week before you bounce back from it and start doing the work that you needed to be doing because you've been in this pit of self-criticism. You are listening to Dr. Nick Cooper on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of Act Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, co-author with Debbie on Act Daily Journal and practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. We all know there are trade-offs in life, like having to drive a little further to save on gas or groceries. But when it comes to your health, you shouldn't have to trade off. So don't go back to that one doctor who's always late and rushes through your appointment just because they're close by or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. You can search by location, availability, insurance, literally no trade-offs here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. My kid's pediatrician is retiring this summer, so you can bet I will be using ZocDoc to find someone new who we all love and trust. So go to ZocDoc.com POTC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot POTC. ZocDoc.com slash POTC. If you listen to this podcast, you probably know by now that we are partnered with Praxis Continuing Education. And there's a reason why. It's because Praxis really can help you transform your clients' lives by learning how to effectively promote lasting change with evidence-based approaches. ACT, DBT, compassion-focused therapy. And we love Praxis so much especially because our very own Debbie Sorensen is going to be doing a workshop through Praxis. Tell us about it, Debbie. Yes, I'm doing a webinar on acceptance commitment therapy for burnout. This is for therapists who are working with clients who are burnt out. And of course, as therapists, we are also (laughs) 
occasionally may experience our own burnout. So hopefully it will be helpful for that too. It starts August 25th and it's on Wednesday afternoons just for a few Wednesdays in a row. Uh, So you can check it out on the Praxis website and learn more. I hope you can join me if you're a therapist. It'd be great to have you there. And for all of the live online courses that Praxis offers, you can go to our website, offtheclockpsych.com, and get a discount code. Hello, friends. We are here today with Dr. Nick Cooper, who is talking to us about his book, The Unbreakable Student, which is about that very special time of life, which is, you know, college years, as we say in the U.S., or he's British, he calls them, he's, he talks about being at university. And to me, he he brings acceptance and commitment therapy skills into that specific time of life. And man, I wish I would have known about this and had these these ideas and skills in my life when I was navigating that that time of life. And I'm here with Diana today to introduce the episode. And Diana, I know you, you've done some work in this area and you had quite a few thoughts to share. What did you think about the episode? Well, I really found that what I really appreciated about Nick's approach was just sort of him, him starting by talking about his personal experience. And I think that I love that about ACT therapists when they're able to describe the reason why they're pursuing the work that they do. And then it's often very values oriented for him as a, as a parent. And for me, I've, I've been working with college students, I feel like, since I left college. And part of the reason why was my own struggles in college that led me to pursue psychology. Um, I did really well academically, but not so much psychosocially <laughs> during college. And I remember even a moment when I, um, I, was, I was pre-med and I remember standing up and receiving this award for being that I was the top student in organic chemistry and holding that award. And it felt like it just fell through my hands because if people only knew what I had gone through mental health wise to get to that place, right? That that's where I feel like ACT and psychological flexibility, our college students need the help with because the expectations that they come into college with, whether it's they need to excel academically or they need to excel socially or they need to be super independent, often sets them up for not having clarity around things like what to do with perfectionistic tendencies or what to do with navigating um, the real challenges of facing substance use. And uh, this is a time when there's a lot of sexual experimentation that that comes up, or this is a time when you're leaving your family and maybe you don't have all of the skills in place of how to, the sort of life skills of how to live independently. And all of that is happening during the college years where I think ACT is so powerful as sort of a guiding principle to help these folks. Yeah. I, I When I used to teach adolescent development, we talked about this period, which is post-adolescence really, but it's, we would call it emerging adulthood. There's this whole literature on emerging adulthood and just thinking about so much growth happens just emotionally you're figuring things out and sort of really a huge transition to striking out on your own. So absolutely, there's a lot going on. You know, it's interesting because Dan Siegel talks about it still as being adolescence all the way up to age 24, which, (laughs) you know, I think it kind of makes sense in terms of the development of the, you know, the frontal lobe and all of that. But but what happens, I think, during the college years, and I worked at a university counseling center for my uh, uh, predoctoral internship, and what I found was, it's like, it's this interesting time where, one, you're trying to be on your own away from your parents, and then at the same time, you still need some support. I remember having uh, clients who... I would, I would meet with them in session and I would be like, Oh my gosh, do your parents know about this? And they would say, no, everything from like, I remember working with a client who hadn't been to class for like four weeks. They just dropped out and no one's telling their parents that this is happening, but they're holed up in their room and no one really knows. Right. So this super increased risk for mental health problems, things like suicidality. And it takes a parent. This, this has given me a a lot of fear. (laughs) Yeah. And actually, what I often uh, talk to my partner about is how working with college age students helps me so much with my parenting now, because I feel like there's some 
some real skills that I want my kids to have in place in going to college. Like, how do you have difficult conversations with people about even just talking with my kids about sex? Like, how do you have conversations about sex? How do you have conversations about racism? How do you um, disagree with a friend and do something different than what your friend is doing? Because those are all the skill sets that you need to navigate really adulthood and, and adulting. And then I also think there's some real rich opportunities that are so unique to the college experience. I mean, if you think back to college, some of the risks that you take and some of the places that you explored that you wouldn't do as an adult that are just so wonderful. And uh, one of the one of the most enriching things that I've I've gone through as a therapist with college students, and this I've done this a couple of times, is um, having clients that are either gender fluid or transgender, and that college was a real opportunity for them to be able to come out and um, everything from be called the name that they want to be called to actually maybe going through some of the change process. And at the same time, how hard it is to do that while also still being in the context of your home. So you're going back home and not a whole lot is changing at home while you are changing during like during this this college time of really identifying who you are, what you care about, how you want to be in the world, taking risks, putting yourself out there. And if there's anything that I think um, is is beneficial for college students is not only their psychological flexibility, but it's the psychological flexibility of the people that support and love them, whether you're a therapist or a parent to to be flexible and open to change and open to the positive growth that can happen during these years. Yeah, that's beautiful to support them and be there for them as they go through this period. Yeah. Well, we hope you enjoy this episode, Dr. Nick Cooper. He's a lovely person, and I think he he has a lot to offer. I'm happy to welcome Dr. Nick Cooper to the podcast. Nick, thank you for being here. No, thank you so much for having me. I uh, really appreciate it, and I've known of uh, psychologists off the clock for quite some time, and some of my heroes have been interviewed by uh, yourself and your colleagues. And so to be one of the people being interviewed is uh, is a real honor for me. Oh, well, thank you, Nick. Let me introduce you to our listeners. Dr. Nick Cooper is an expert in clinical psychology and a senior lecturer at the University of the West of England in Bristol. Nick is also a co-director of Connect, which is an organization that offers a psychological well-being curriculum for primary school children. He's authored many scientific articles, book chapters, and books, including The Acceptance and Commitment Therapy Diary, which is published annually, The Research Journey of Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, and The Acceptance and Commitment Therapy Journal, Nick, we have to talk about this. (laughs) We published both two acceptance and commitment therapy journals on different continents with different publishers to come out at the same time and only just realized this a few months ago. And I just so appreciated you reaching out to me. I think you discovered this first. Um, And it meant a lot to me because I think we didn't have to turn it into a a competition or a problem. There's room in the world for two act journals yeah um you know i wanted you to feel like i supported you in the same way that you immediately supported me and our project here in the uk and so i'm much it felt important to reach out and just say from the outset we are friends we are going to be friends going forwards and that's and that's that irrespective of the fact that we're selling a book that is very similar to a market of people that that might choose one over the other so no i was really happy to reach out i'm really happy that you uh, got back to me so quickly with such support and love as well well thank you and what i discovered through our interaction is that you have another new book you are quite productive when it comes to writing nick and your other book that is just coming out in july 2021 is called the unbreakable student Six Rules to Staying Sane at University. And that's, I think, what we're going to orient the conversation around today. It's really a book that uses acceptance and commitment therapy geared toward undergraduate students. And there's such a sweet story behind how you got started writing this one. Can you tell that story, Nick? Because it is just the sweetest thing. Yeah, I I definitely can. Um, and so yeah, I've written this this book, and it um, it feels like the book that I was born to write. You know, they say how everyone has got that one book in them, 
and I think this was this was my book. But when I originally started writing the book, it wasn't directed towards students. I, my son was two years old; it was his birthday, and um, and we were watching the film The Lion King. And in that film, there's a scene in that film. I'm going to ruin it for anybody that hasn't watched The Lion King. But if you haven't alert. watched The Lion King, yeah, you haven't been alive, have you? So yeah. Like, yeah, if you haven't seen The Lion King, fast forward for about 30 seconds, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And maybe even just fast forward that scene as well, because it's much easier emotionally to do that. Um, because in that scene, the uh, the daddy lion dies and my uh, my son at the time sort of looked up at me and I was I was crying at the time because I, I there, it, there was this moment where I just thought, oh my words, I, I could not be here. Something tragic could happen to me. And if that happened, then um, I wouldn't be here to tell you stuff about life and how tricky it can be and what to do about that. And so I, I actually, nobody, I haven't said this before in any other podcast or anything, but I actually wrote a blog to my son the next day. It was called dear max i think and i think it had sort of 2000 hits in about two days or something like that it seemed to really resonate with people where i was trying to sort of um, tell him about the dance that happens between between love and pain and anyhow as a result of of writing that blog i um started to write a book to, to him and the idea was that this book would be given to him when he was 18 years old if i happened to not be around at the time so I said to my wife, I'm writing Max a book. It's a book of life advice. I want you to give it to him when he when he's 18 years old, if I'm if I'm not around at that time. So my wife still has access to that file on my computer and knows where it is, you know, in case unfortunately that should uh, that should happen to me. And so I started writing this book to Max, and it probably took me a year to write this book. And at the end of it, I realized that I had essentially put my own philosophy for living, for life into word format and that's what i mean when i say i feel like i was born to write this book i was the only person that could write this book because the this is a, a culmination of all of my experiences in life and a big part of that culmination is act it, it is um being able to manage my unwanted thoughts and feelings in a more functional way while being able to move towards my values and so a, a lot of what has been funneled into this book to my son is uh, our act-based principles which shows like, in some ways how much i really believe in uh, act as a treatment approach and then uh, the book was written and i had the thought well i wonder if this might be useful to more people than than just my son and so i ended up sending it to a few people and they sent i ended up getting sent to a publishing house and the publishing house said um, this isn't ready in its current format. You need a literary agent. Now you can imagine, I've written this book to my son. I'm thinking, a literary agent? I'm not sure I want to be a writer-writer. But you know, I was I was committed at that point. And so I thought, well, I'll see how this goes. And I got put in contact with a literary agent who and I ended up signing a contract with. So it's really bizarre to say, I've got an agent. But I do have an agent. And we, so we wrote it really hard and we ended up getting a a contract with a big trade publisher here in the UK called Little Brown. And Little Brown said that they would take it on as long as it was written to students. Now, the thing that happened for me at that point was was really interesting because I wrote the book to be given to my son as an 18-year-old. I I wrote it in a tone that I use with my students because I'm a I'm a university lecturer. I spent the last 15 years in universities teaching students and and trying to help them navigate their way around the unwanted thoughts and feelings that can happen when you're at university using act-based principles. And so to make a jump from a book that was written to my son as an 18-year-old to students generally, it really wasn't a big jump. It didn't take a whole load of effort to be able to change the, the gist of the book to go from my son to students because it turned out that that book was written just as much to my students as it was to my son. Yeah. I mean, I think that it is you, I feel like I know you better from reading the book. So yeah. it, it really, your heart and soul is in there. And in the book, you write about that love and pain connection. And I think you can see that, you know, just in the heart with which you wrote this, starting with that letter to Max. I mean, it's so beautiful. I appreciate that. So the book, again, it's a guide for students looking after their well-being at university. It's funny and fun to read, and it has practical advice. It's really grounded in 
acceptance and commitment therapy, but also psychological science, just in terms of helpful tips, practical wisdom. And you have some great stories and examples. Because you know this age, university age student population so well, it's this really interesting time of life. I think sort of the transition from adolescence to adulthood, there's so much happening. And to me, that point in life is really unique. It's really exciting. There's a lot of vitality. It can also be, I think for many, a challenge, hence the need for some some well-being tips. What are your thoughts about some of the most unique challenges that arise during that particular time of life? I think that university students, in terms of challenges, have to face new social situations. I, I remember being a student. It's hard to walk into a room of people where you don't know anybody and strike up conversations. It's hard to be five minutes late for a lecture and to walk into a lecture theater with 200 people. It's hard to go into uh, a, um, uh, we have halls of residence here where you're in a basically a flat with, or an apartment with six or seven people. It's hard to go into that and not know anybody and have to manage your way through that social situation. It's hard to turn up to um, clubs, sports clubs or hobbies and not know anybody and be able to strike up conversation. And I think that for the way that I um, or some of the, the conversations that I've had with students, a lot of the challenges are social and around being able to navigate their way through those introductions and also being able to manage relationships on an, on an ongoing basis. And so I think that's the biggest thing. And they've got to do that, of course, away from their support system away from the people that they usually seek advice from and away from um, people that they know they're safe around and they, they, have their, they have their backs. And so I think that that would be the, the, major, the major challenge I think that university students have. And that's, of course, without they've got to manage their own finances for the first time or they have to cook for themselves for, for the first time or they're fully responsible for their own study and behavior. If they don't do anything, if they don't do any work at university, the lecturers aren't going to be chasing them because that's not the lecturer's job at university level. It's self-directed study. And if you don't do anything, you'll waste a year of your life not really achieving a whole lot. And so managing the pressures of coursework deadlines and reading the module handbooks and turning up to exams on time and knowing and having revised for those exams, I think that that is a lot of uh, pressure. And that, you know, the strange thing is, is that, of course, university is painted as and colleges, it would be the word that you say over in the US, right? But the universities here in the UK, they're painted as this time of fun and games, and they are for a lot of people. I, I wouldn't want people to think that this book is painting university in a in a negative or, or cynical way, because lo lots of people have wonderful experiences at university, and they do come with challenges. And if you look at the statistics for mental health with university students, and if you look at the rising number of people that are seeking treatment at counseling services at university students you'll see that actually a lot more people than you might think are suffering at university and need help in being able to being able to deal with that and so it is um i think there are lots of lots of challenges for university students and which is one of the reasons why this book is so uh, is, is written for this population and of course this aligns with my own experience of students because i for example, in any given week, we'll teach eight seminar classes and each seminar class will have 25 students in it. And out of those 25 students, there are always a number of them that maybe are not comfortable in their own skin, that are maybe uh, struggling in, in certain ways. And that's shown itself in, in uh, lots of different behaviors. But out of, those, out of those 200 kids, I call them kids because that's what they are in my, in Compare, my old head. <laughs> compared yeah, to and, right. Yeah, 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 exactly. And they are adults, of course, but, you know, I, I, maybe that's a, a Freudian slip in some ways, me saying kids, because I, I, I can't get away from putting my own son's face on my students. And so my son is my kid. He is my child. And so I don't know whether I call them kids because I think in my eyes, and maybe this sounds grandiose, but I'm going to say it anyway. I, I, I'm, I'm playing some role in replacing a parent. I am in a caring and pastoral role. I, I have to care for the welfare of, of my students. And maybe that's the reason why I call them kids. But plenty of those kids in those seminars, 
they are struggling in, in, in certain ways. And so the, the stats, they align with my own personal experience of being in a university and, and seeing students. And so the book is aimed at those students mostly. It's aimed at students that are struggling a little bit and need to know how to manage their thoughts and feelings and still keep their feet moving towards the things that are important to them. And if anyone out there knows ACT, that's essentially the, the ACT sentence. Um, but I also think it's, it's, not, it's written for students that are absolutely fine. And I say that because a, a, a young person out there might have an experience that lead them to a point where they're absolutely fine, but psychological troubles, they're always just around the corner. And so when they come, then all of a sudden you've got this protective strategy for how to deal with it. And you can also talk to your friends about it as well. And you can also use the rules within the book to, to flourish, to start doing, to not just not have symptoms of psychological ill health, but also to flourish and to have positive energy within within your life. And so I really think that anybody could read, any student could read the book and, and get something from it and take something from it in terms of uh, doing things differently in their lives. I mean, to be honest, I think we all could because there were some nuggets in there that I could use myself and I'm well past university age. I, I w- As you're talking, I'm just thinking that when, if you think about a if you think about a growth mindset approach to life, and I think those years, you're learning so many things about yourself, about the world academically, but also the lived experience. And I think one of the things that people are often learning is how to handle their emotions, how to live effectively, how to handle, you know, self-doubt and, and different types of thoughts that arise. And so that's why I think your book is really an important one because that's part of the growth and learning process. I think of that particular time in life for, for pretty much everyone, whether you're struggling or like you said, whether you're, you're not, I mean, we all have our, our challenges. Yeah. It's funny you said you mentioned growth mindset because in an early version of the book, I had a paragraph on growth mindset and especially in the context of self stories and how um, your own view of yourself can sometimes be a little bit of a, of a prison. And of course that, um, links with a fixed mindset, you know, this idea that things are a certain way and can never change. And, and what does that mean for one's life? If you think that, for example, you're not a good public speaker and you've got a fixed mindset, then that can never change, right? And so what does that mean for you? Does that mean that you don't go for interviews? Does it mean that you don't turn up for presentations at university? Whereas holding self-stories lightly, seeing them as these things that we build in order to navigate our way through the world more efficiently, but maybe not in a... not in an ontological way but what i mean by there is like not as if they're really hard bits of truth that we need to hold on to like if we hold those things more lightly or if we have a growth mindset like public speaking ability is something that can change it's something that we can work on the more that we work at the better we'll get at it if we've got that sort of attitude towards self stories or or any self story then it's it's going to help you to to be in the world a little bit better that's right. That's right. Gives you more freedom. So you offer six main areas of well-being, and these are really big ones with robust support for well-being for everyone. It's they're very, you know, you can't really dispute that these are good things for people. And we're going to walk through, I think, a couple of those today. What I thought would be fun, Nick, is to highlight a few of my favorite ideas from your book, grappling with examples that you t- that you write about, and also that people will relate to university students, but also the rest of us. And I want to start here. Okay. So in your book, you write about avoidance, right? The cycle of avoidance, the unhelpful things people sometimes do when they're struggling that, you know, usually ultimately make things worse. And a great example of this that many people have at university is procrastination, right? So you have a big exam or you need to stay on top of your reading and instead you're watching TV, scrolling around, you know, social media, scrolling around. Um, Could you talk about avoidance using that as an example? Yeah, sure I can. Um, So procrastination and avoidance. I think that when you take on or when you have a piece of work to do at university, it's not a particularly pleasant experience. Like people don't like writing essays. Students don't like writing essays. They don't like researching essays. And more probably more importantly, they, they don't like the feelings of self-doubt that can come when you're writing an essay, the feelings of I'm not good enough. And so, of course, the easy way 
to avoid those feelings of self-doubt or to avoid the feelings of, I just can't be bothered to do this right now. Uh, the easy way to avoid that is just to not do it. It's just to not make a make a start on that on that essay. And so what you do instead is you go and watch Netflix with your friends or you play on computer games or these days, I mean, students are really good these days. Maybe they go for a run or something or, you know, do something that's actually pretty helpful. It's still avoidance, but it's just like more functional avoidance. And then of course they get to the day before the, um, the submission for the assignment and they haven't started it. And now they, they basically are forced into starting it. And so they start it at eight or nine o'clock in the night and they finish it at four o'clock in the morning and they hand it in at nine in the morning without even having proofread it, which of course is going to affect their mark. And so here you can see sort of how avoidance plays out. Like we get certain thoughts and feelings and we don't like them. And so we try to get rid of them. And some of the things that we do to try and get rid of unwanted thoughts and feelings are not particularly helpful to our long-term future. And in this case, our education is important. And so handing in assignments of good quality is important to a long-term goal of doing well in education, having careers and stuff. But the uh, in the short term, the avoidance can sometimes cause us to not do those things that are important to us in the in the long term. And so I think that I talk a little bit in one of the chapters about willingness as a way to manage this sort of, you have to be able to interact with unwanted thoughts and feelings in a more flexible way. You can't see them and run for the hills. You need to be able to uh, pick them up and look at them and put them in your pocket and continue with action towards the thing that is important to you. And the thing about willingness is, yeah, you know, I can give a, a light-hearted example with procrastination because it's quite funny procrastination isn't it you know the students will tell jokes about how they were going to start it and then they saw a bottle of red wine and the next thing they knew it was four o'clock in the morning and they hadn't done it you know so it is a, a funny thing but willingness can be applied in so many different in so many different contexts at university some some of them a lot more serious than procrastination uh, like managing conflict with friends or lecturers even or um, being willing to experience the discomfort that happens just before you're about to go into an exam or uh, do a presentation. And so um, I think that within the book, each way to well-being, also each of the chapters, I talk about a different act process. But really, you can apply any act process to any particular situation. And willingness seems important in many, many situations, as well as procrastination. Yeah, I mean, I think even that test anxiety, exam yeah. stress, example for willingness, I've I've seen some folks in my practice over the years who have that, who just have a surge of anxiety right before exam. Could you talk about how you might utilize willingness in a moment when you have an exam in 45 minutes and your, your anxiety is through the roof? Well, the thing about willingness is it's hard to conjure on the spot. And so, you know, without any sort of training, you could call it prior to this, without any experiencing of, without any experience of contacting discomfort and keeping going, then you probably wouldn't have a generalized skill that would allow you in that, in that particular situation to keep going. And so I, in the book, I talk about how a, a brilliant way to practice exercise is something that I do with my students, which is where I get them to stare into each other's eyes for two minutes. And I tell them, do not break eye contact. And this particular exercise, of course, it ramps up discomfort. Discomfort goes through the roof when you're staring into some, somebody's eyes. But I tell them, you, you know, you, you can feel that discomfort and you can keep holding eye contact. You can keep doing this particular thing. And what they learn from that is, oh, right, discomfort isn't something that I need, immediately need to run away from. But it is something that they need to, to practice. And so if they were in that exam situation, I wish I had a magic wand that could make them feel willing. But willingness in that situation is the action of continuing with the tests, taking their discomfort with them, picking it up, putting it in their pocket, taking them with them, knowing that discomfort is a natural part of the process for human beings when they're doing things that are important to them. And so, yeah, it probably wouldn't be something that I would be able to conjure on the spot, but with a little bit of practice and chatting beforehand and i think that i would be able to manage it i think that willingness as well is just is absolutely crucial with regards to the social situations that i was talking about earlier on i you, you know you, you you get 
invited to a party and a lot of people a lot of students that i speak to these days i don't want to use the word socially phobic because it puts like a diagnosis on them but they are at least nervous or apprehensive of going into a social situation so as they're on their way there they're feeling uh sweaty palms their heart is beating and their mind is going wild saying you you're not very good at socializing don't don't go into that party and if you listen to your mind and and your discomfort in that situation and if you want to get rid of your discomfort the easy way to do it is just to go back to your room you just go back to your room and you play on your playstation or you uh watch uh watch movies and then of course you wake up the next day and you don't feel very good and the reason is because you didn't do this thing that was that was important to you and so in that situation, if you could rewind, you're on the way to the party, you've got sweaty palms and you've got a uh, fast heartbeat and you've got all these negative thoughts and feelings going through your mind. If you can if you can be willing to have them, if you can pick them up and you can look at them and you can and, and appreciate why they're there and why they happen and still keep moving your feet towards that, that room, then I think that you're going to have a life that is filled with more freedom and more liberty. And I think that's the thing that I try to get across yeah, I think it's chapter five of the book, which is like life opens up when discomfort isn't something to run away from. You can really, all of a sudden, you're not making decisions on the basis of that won't feel very nice. You're making decisions on the basis of moving moving towards things that are important to you, and it's a it's a it's a it's a cool skill to develop and to and to practice. Uh, if you want to, if you want to live a life of freedom. Yeah. I think it's like you're training like a muscle you're building up over yeah. time. Each time you do something outside your comfort zone, each time you open up to your emotions, you get a little better at it, a little better at it. And then you, you learn, I can mm. feel nervous and go into this social situation, go into this exam, write yeah. a book, get a yeah. PhD, whatever the case may be. But I think you're right in saying that you can't just save it up till that one hard moment and expect the skill to be there. It's a, it's a yeah, process. Absolutely. I do. Yeah. I do agree with you. I think it, I think willingness is almost a, a shortcut to exposure. You know, you, 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 if you can get to it, then you can learn about how you respond in such situations. And then the next time you're in those situations, they're a little bit less intimidating. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, uh, I agree, but it's something that you'd need to, to practice a generalized skill of discomfort being okay. Um, which won't happen overnight for uh, for people. Right. Hey, listeners, it's Jill here. As you know, in addition to being a POTC co-host, I'm also an author. And part of being an author is having a platform or an online presence. So if you like the types of interviews I do and you want to hear more from me on ACT, imposterism, anxiety, and more, I'd love it if you would help me out by signing up for my monthly newsletter and by following me on social media. Just go to jillstoddard.com and scroll to the bottom of any page to sign up for the newsletter and click the social media buttons in the upper right-hand corner. Thanks for your support. Among the areas of well-being that you offer are some pretty concrete ones related to the benefits of things like exercise, sleep, eating well, just physical self-care. Mm. And we all know that this is helpful for our physical and mental health, but it can be a challenge. And I'm just thinking of, well, myself now, but also when I back when I was yep. a, a student, just thinking of a high achieving student who's busy, who has a lot going on, work, school, friends, mm who's noticing that, you know, during times of high stress, maybe, you know, she's struggling to, to take care of these things. Maybe there's thoughts getting in the way, that kind of thing. Could you just talk about, I don't know, how you might, some of the challenges to, to this type of self-care and what advice you'd have for people? Yeah, I think that I, there's a lovely illustration in the book of a, a window with a load of plates and cups being thrown out of it. And the illustrator for the book, he picked up on me saying something along the lines of when life gets tough, it's always self-care that gets thrown out of the window first. It is your exercise, it is your eating well, it is your sleeping habits. And yet those those are the fundamentals of life. They, you know, they really 
serve as uh, grounding anchors for us. And so, in fact, when times get tough, there's no there's no better time to practice your exercise and to practice your sleeping habits and to practice your your eating habits. Um, and so, yeah, I've I've gone on a journey myself with that. I mean, when I was in university, I was never thinking about exercise or eating or definitely not sleep. And yet those things would have helped me when I started to feel overwhelmed. And of course, around testing periods, around exams, exam periods, it's easy for students to get into the habit of studying for 12 hours a day or 14 hours a day. And that's essentially the road to burnout. And it's the road to lower quality work. And so during those periods, being able to continue with a semi-decent exercise regime, being able to look, have good sleep hygiene and eating healthily uh, is only going to help you to study rather than hinder your, your studying. The problem is, is that when you start doing those things, you'll start having thoughts, uh, a, a variety of thoughts that probably won't be very helpful. Some of it, which might be, you haven't got time for this. You haven't got time to, to do these things. Or another might be, I can't be bothered to go for a run. Like I, I, running is hard. I don't want to. I don't want to go for a run. And so it's important to be able to relate to such thoughts in a functional way when they when they come along. And in the book, I talk about diffusion, which is another. Nick, I feel like you way. could you could use me as an example of this because I think that the story I tell myself all the time is I'm too busy to carve. I mean, not all the time because I do exercise yeah. and to some degree and try to get some sleep. But I think that's I that thing about it going out the window. I totally relate to that because I think when I'm busy, I always think I'm too busy today. I just need to get these things done. Mm. I'll do it later in the week. I'll do it tomorrow, etc. So yeah. yes, exactly what you're saying it, hits the nail on the head for me. It's funny, isn't it? It's like it's it's a hard choice to choose to self care. I think yeah. that that's that's the the friction there is that self care for people it comes with these really positive connotations and they're positive behaviors who doesn't want to eat well who doesn't want to be fit and strong who doesn't want to want to get a good amount of sleep and yet when you're busy and you're up against it it is a hard choice to sacrifice doing work especially if you're semi-addicted to work like i am it's a, I, i'm i'm choosing discomfort the discomfort of eating well i'm choosing the discomfort of making sure i've got good sleep hygiene and making sure that i'm exercising so it's really not it's self-care is a hard thing it's not an easy it's not an easy thing but it's you know, really important to people's uh, psychological health and that's the reason why that particular bit of advice is in the chat is are in the chapter descriptions because all of the chapters in the book they're de they're derived from the five ways to well-being that turned into the six ways to well-being. And so the five ways to well-being are relatively well-known, uh, as you pointed out earlier in the in the interview, sort of connect with others, give to people, embrace the moment, etc. And these were put together by the New Economics Foundation a long time ago. But an ex-student of mine working with uh, Joe Cherokee in Australia did her thesis on the six ways to well-being, which was the five ways to well-being plus self-care. So um, Gitanjali, Dr. Gitanjali Basakod and, uh, and Joseph Shiroki, they, they, they investigated uh, the five ways to well-being and saw that self-care was, was really important as well. And so that's the reason why that uh, made it into, into the book. But it so is how would you use thought? How would you work with thoughts like the one I have about I don't have time? What, what strategy would you use for that? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, with. I would definitely go with a diffusion strategy. The thing about diffusion is that I always get caught into explaining diffusion rather than doing diffusion. And so I, you know, I would probably, with a thought like, I don't know, I'm too busy to go running. It would probably be a, uh, you know, I'm having the thought that I'm too busy to go running and being able to sort of like step back and watch that. Or maybe uh, I, in the book, I talk about like watching your thoughts on a lecture on a, on a slides in a, in a, in a lecture. Uh, but I think more than that, I think that what I see powerful with students is explaining to students that our thoughts don't always have to cause our behavior. I think it, a discussion about the, the nature of thoughts really 
helps to power diffusion and especially the idea that um that that truth in our thoughts doesn't matter um relative to workability and so i would say to students we have a lot of thoughts and our minds feed us thoughts and sometimes our thoughts are helpful with regards to our long-term goals and sometimes they're not so helpful with regards to our long-term goals and the interesting thing about thoughts is we don't always have to listen to them so for example if you have the thought i'm too busy to go running uh, or maybe it was the thought i'm too busy to go running if i go running now i'm not going to be able to do so much work i'm going to say to the students you know you might be right that thought might be absolutely true but is it helpful if it stops you from doing this really important well-being behavior a student might say if i have a cigarette I um, I'm going to feel relaxed afterwards. I might say, "Then you're right. You're right. Maybe that thought is absolutely true. But is it workable? Is it useful if stopping smoking is really important to you?" And so, like, really having students think about the nature of thoughts and how um, workability is a, is a better way of interacting with thoughts over truth. Uh, I think really works to set the stage for diffusion sets the set the stage for you sat in your chair right now having the thought i'm too busy to go uh running and being able to spot it and being able to go ah there you are i see you i see you that thought i see what you're trying to do here i'm gonna get my trainers on i'm gonna get out the door and so i think it's just that i i, I loved the diffusion part of the of the act model it has helped me immensely to spot the thoughts that often come up i have uh, i think steve hayes a long time ago he like i think he asked someone like how old is this in some sort of uh some sort of interview or video or something like how old is this and i i find myself coming up against those old thoughts that are sometimes big passengers on my bus but because of diffusion i'm able to look at them and recognize them i'm able to go ah there you are i see you there i know why you i know why you exist and uh, I'm going to keep doing this thing because it's important to this value. It's important to this life direction. I I have been having that thought. I'm too busy for a very long time. I mean, decades. Yeah. <laughs> too yeah, busy. It go I'm away. always too busy. And I just had yeah. this image as you were talking that I can just like take that with me, stick it in my pocket and bring it with me on my run. Because I think you're right. You can still move your feet. Yeah. I think yeah. what's really interesting though, Debbie, is that of course you're an act expert. I, according to my bio, I'm an expert as well. And, you know, I've been in and around ACT since I was, well, I wrote my dissertation on it with Louise McHugh and I was 20 years old, so 16 years ago. And of course, the, these, you never become a Zen, perfect psychological being, do you? And it's so important it, for ACT clinicians and people who love ACT. And you, you, I see it so much for them to be on the level, the level, the same field as their clients. Say, I'm on the same field as my students. And I try to get that across in the book. Like I'm not going to reach a point where, uh, where I'm not going to need these skills. I'm always, every time I, I hate running, I hate it. Every time before I run, my mind is brilliant. It's like a, an excuse machine coming out but you know being able to relate to those excuses spot and spot the thoughts that my mind is feeding me and still run means that i get to be fit and i get to be strong and why is that important for me it's important because i want to grow older and i want to see my son grow up and i want to be able to travel and be able to move my body so it's linked to all these different values that are going on as well and so like i think that clinicians uh practitioners let's let's call them we embody act and we, we we're never past unwanted thoughts and feelings they're right. never going to cease. They're, ne- that, they're never going to cease to happen. They never go away forever, no. do they? No, they don't. They don't, and they get the better of us. They get the better of us as well. Yeah. That's the other. That's the other thing that we, I need to get across to my students. Like, I'm not perfect. Like it, it was only a few days ago where I wasn't feeling particularly well, and you know, cut screen. I drank a bottle of wine and watched films till four o'clock in the morning. You know, like we're not perfect. Like we fall foul to the power of the human mind sometimes as well. But if you know, if we can, most of the time relate to our thoughts and feelings in a more functional way, then the, the wheels of our life keep turning, which is uh, what I think is important. Right. Keep keeping at it. You know, I want to talk about, I want to talk about how 
I think students can sometimes be so hard on themselves. You know, we we're talking about high, high achieving students mm-hmm. who are working hard and they have exams coming up. And I mean, I've really found that sometimes self-criticism can be really high when people are doing hard things like going to school, you know, taking exams, mm-hmm. applying for various jobs and graduate programs, etc. What advice do you have for helping students who maybe could stand to go a little bit easier on themselves? Do you see that? First of all, do you see that in the work that you do? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, high expectations. the, The amount of times that I've said this sentence to students, there he is. And they'll say, there who is? I'll say, there's little you on your shoulder with a big stick hitting you over the head. Because, of course, we're our own worst critics, aren't we, generally speaking? And, and of course, uh, this happens at university. It it manifests in different ways, you know. So, like, some students are quite obviously self-critical, and they have self-critical thoughts. And that functions for them in a a semi-functional way. Because what they do then is they go to the library and they study for 10 hours. So they study for 12 hours. So their self-criticism and their needs to avoid it are actually making them study longer, which makes them achieve more. The self-critical thoughts never go away, by the way, but it, it, you know, it, it works for them. Whereas other students, they shut down when self-critical thoughts come along, like I'm not good enough or I'm not smart enough or the, you know, the work that I'm doing isn't up to standard or a- a- anything along those lines. And so what they do is then they go and they party or they, uh, they avoid in various, various less useful ways. And so you can, you can, you can get o- over all of that with self-compassion. And that's why in the, the one chapter of the book, I talk about uh, self-compassion. I explore it a little bit as well. And do you know what? As I was writing this chapter, Debbie, I'll be um, truthful with you. I only noticed this re- this relationship as I was writing. So this particular chapter wasn't in my original book with, with Max. And I talk in it about the dance that happens between self-compassion and values, about self-critical thoughts and values, and how often self-criticism comes when we don't act in a way that's in line with our values and so on the one hand values are these wonderful things where the more that we move towards them the more that we do them the the, the happier that we're, we're going to be generally the better our, our well our psychological well-being will be but if we don't move in a way that's in line with the values or if we act in a way that's counter to our values of course we're not going to like ourselves very much and so the question is then what do you do when you've acted in a way that's counter to, to your values and self-critical thoughts come along. And the only answer that I've got to that is self-compassion, is this understanding that, look, you're a human being and you're not perfect and you're going to get things wrong at times and uh, you're not always going to get the best marks. And even worse than that, sometimes you might not always treat people in a way that you're proud of and you're a human being and you know, you're going to make mistakes. And so that's that's okay. And so I think I think that the thing about self-critical thoughts is being able to bounce back from them quickly in terms of your behavior. Because often self-critical thoughts come along and then you have wasted a week before you bounce back from it and start doing the work that you needed to be doing because you've been in this pit of self-criticism. And so I like I, I make no promises in the book of being able to control or get rid of self-criticism. As long as you're a human being, that's probably going to be the case for uh, for students. But being able to to have heart for yourself and, and love for yourself when you make your mistakes, and being able to get back on that on that horse quickly is going to be a useful a useful thing for you to be to be able to do. And so, yeah, there's lo- there's lots to sort of like unpack in that chapter with regards to values and uh, self compassion. But students, uh, I, I tell them you're going to mess up. You're going to mess up in bigger ways than you've ever messed up. You need to know that now going into life. You're going to mess up. And you know what? That's, it's okay. It's okay. You can keep going after uh, after that's happened. I do think the thing yeah. about shame is that we tend to 
not want to share it because we want to keep that part of ourselves hidden. But you you kind of put it out there in a way you even, I think in the book you said, even just writing it and reading it, you felt a surge of, of shame. Yeah. But I know we all have those things. I mean, I've certainly done things that I hate to think about because it brings that yeah. surge. But if we can shine a light on it, I think it frees us up and we can so. actually get support instead of feeling like we have to hide that part of our history or our experience. So I want to move into to kind of toward um, the end of the conversation to one of my very favorite parts of the book, which is in your chapter about embracing the moment mm-hmm. and embracing that moment of that particular time in life. You you write about you call it the heartbreaking nature of time, mm-hmm. and it was just so beautiful to read about that. And here's another quote that you have. You say, grab this university adventure with both hands, throw yourself into your experiences. Tell us about time passing and embracing the moment. Yeah, I'm glad you picked up on this. This was a, this was a moment for me, this, this chapter, because I was writing the chapter about mindfulness. And of course, at university, you say the word mindfulness to students like, ah, oh, that mindfulness thing, that fad, meditation, I'm not going to do meditation. You know, you, you, you get that sort of reaction to it. And so as I was trying to justify the inclusion of mindfulness in uh, this in this book, I gave it a very concrete and pragmatic function, which is our minds wander when they wander. We can't do the thing that's in front of us. Therefore, if we practice mindfulness prior to that, we're going to get better at spotting when our minds have wandered and bring them back to what's important in the moment. I talk about, uh, you know, in exams, for example, when your mind is wandering to the various things going on in your exams, you're not concentrating on the thing that's in front of you. And I wrote the chapter and I thought, that's not what, that's not just what mindfulness is about. Mindfulness is about a lot more than that. And it was triggered by me watching uh, the film about time. And uh, there's, I'm not sure if, if uh, I'm sure you've, you've all heard of this film in the, uh, in the US, but in the UK, it did really well. And it was about, um, uh, I'll tell you the, the hook of the story. It was about a family where the male members of the family could go back in time. And so if anything happened that they didn't quite like, for example, imagine they're doing a podcast like this, it didn't quite go to plan. So they rewind an hour and then they can do the, they can do it again. Um, and so it, 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 uh, it was a funny film about how this plays out within, within the family. And at a certain point, the dad in the family, he, um, he died. Now this wasn't a problem for the son because the son could always travel back in time to visit the dad. But there's like this shift in, in the in the grounds uh, that means that um, the dad can only be visited one more time, and so the uh, the son goes back in time to visit his dad. And both characters in the movie they come to know that like this is the last time they're ever going to see each other. They can no longer see each other in these visits that that happen. And the dad said to the son. Um, I want to take you somewhere now because I can still do this time travel thing. If you get over the, you know, the, the sci-fi element of this movie, it's a brilliant movie. And so the dad in that situation took his son back to a moment where they were on the beach throwing stones in the sea. And the son was about seven years old at this point. And of course the dad was a lot younger too. And as I watched this film, my wife was in there was in the um the room at the time i was crying so hard i couldn't speak i just i couldn't get words out of my mouth and the reason for it is because we so easily wish away time i so easily wish away time like i'm not sure if people out there have got little ones but like playing teachers or shopkeepers it's destroying, it's soul destroying to play those games. And so you're just like watching your clock or playing on your phone and your child is having the time of their life playing with you and you're not fully there because it's hard and it's and mm-hmm. it's a slog. And I just thought, and yet, when I'm on my deathbed, this is the exact moment that I'm going to want to relive. This moment that I'm not fully in and engaging with 
at the moment, uh, uh, you know, at, at this particular time. And so like mindfulness isn't just about developing these useful attention skills so that you can do well in exams. It's about realizing that time is moving and you can't go backwards. So it's about really engaging with what's going on around you at the moment with the knowledge that those mo- these moments, they're not coming again. Like they're gone. Like time is only going to move in, in one direction. And so like it, I, I remember writing that chapter. I was in a caravan in Wales, which is, which is where I'm from. And halfway through writing the chapter, someone who I didn't know from a neighboring caravan knocked on the door and I opened it and I was in floods of tears. <laughs> and this poor random person was like, like a rabbit in the headlights, like, what have I walked into here? And I'm like slob, sobbing or something. They're like, I just brought, brought back, you know, the cricket bat. I'm like, thank you. And I took the, the cricket bat or something and went back in. But I just, every time I think about this, I think it's the, I think it's the single biggest thing. For, that human beings struggle with in terms of struggle to get their head around it's such a deep and complex thing to get this i to get your head around this idea that time is moving and you can't have it back and so that's what i did with the mindfulness chapter and i'm really glad that you brought it up because it's just something i'm particularly proud of that chapter because i think it's such a an important message for students which is look i know it can be a slog i know it can be hard i know that you know you're in extreme social situations or that you're away from your families or that you're having to deal with these these uh, pressures but these are the moments these are the moments you're going to look back on and you're really going to want to want to be able to go back to and i know that right because i used to be you 16 years ago and my parents do you know what they want they want to be me and my grandparents they want to be my parents and like we all want to be back in the situations we happen to find ourselves ourselves in and so really grab it with both hands as best as you as best as you can you know, it's so funny. I'm pretty content overall. In a lot of ways, I'd say I'm more content now in my, you know, my middle-aged life with two kids as a psychologist than I was back then. But yeah. I have so many memories and I can I just have this vision of myself. I went to college in Boulder, Colorado, and on a beautiful day toward the end of spring semester. And I mean, it's when it's beautiful weather in Boulder, Colorado. I was sitting by the fountain outside in the, you know, kind of the student outdoor area and just having such a moment of loving it. And I sometimes I think it would be so great to go back to that moment and experience that again, you know, as a 20 year old and I'll never be able to. And that's not to say I'm not content now, but it's just that is a moment in time that I kind of wish you could freeze and, and go back to. And of course you can't, and that's can't. The, that's the crazy yeah. thing. I could go right? back like, to Boulder, but yeah, I would yeah. be not twenty anymore. Yeah, it's not yeah. the same thing, right? Yeah, and I I, I remember um, I'm not sure who it was that said it to me, but they were like, you know, how how do we grab the moment? And I think sometimes it can feel as though grabbing the moment is like grabbing a cloud. You know, you can't fully fully grab it. Then they're like, how? And I could, the best I could come up with was. Um, which is in the, the like the homework bit of the the book, which is like three deep breaths. I just find myself these days just like really trying to slow down and just breathe in three times and really be sort of like where I am. And I I try to do it on multiple occasions every day just to really sort of like be where I am and also hold the sadness and the melancholy that comes with this day is gone at the end of today and I can't get it back. And yeah. that is I have to accept that. I have yeah. to accept that that is that's the nature of being a being a human being, and that sometimes I, I, I've also got to accept that I'm not going to grab the moment, and I'm not going to be this person that is fully present all the time, and have a bit of heart and a bit of self compassion for that as well. Yeah, savor the moment the best you can. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So one final question for you: If you could go back to your younger self when you were you know, in university and give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be? Oh, wow. What a question I could give, I guess what I would, um, I would go back and say, life's hard. That's what I'd go back and say. I'll go back and say, you don't, you don't quite know it yet. But like life can be hard and uh, people can suffer. 
and people respond to suffering in various ways. And when they're responding to that suffering, they're just trying their best to deal with something. And when they do that, be patient, uh, be loving, uh, be open and, uh, and just be, be there, not with any groundbreaking answers or, you know, answers to the world's questions, but just be there. And sorry, the, the reason why I'm slowing that down is because you'll know that in the book, I talk about my dad a little bit and, uh, and yeah, that's what I'm talking about there. I'm talking about understanding that human beings are imperfect and that they're going to react in funny ways to suffering. And that that's perfectly understandable. That's perfectly okay. And not a reason to feel lots of uh, anger and resentment. Yeah, that's that's, that's what I'd go back and say. Mm. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. That's really, really moving. Mm. Thank you, Nick. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation today and getting to know you. <laughs> More than you already do. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. right. I know, because in the book, of course, like I, I give so much. It was just really important that the uh, the reader that the the reader knows me as a in order to be able to to listen and I think that that what I wanted from the book wasn't answers it was look if you're going through some stuff my book might help I'm not making any promises to students that this is going to be life changing stuff and some of the stuff might work for them some of the stuff might not work for them and just human beings are so complex for me to be able to go with these are definitely gonna change your life and so I needed them to know that like these stuff that in my life I've done and they've worked for me and they might work for you and I hope they do and yeah. so uh, you know I've given myself and also like that that personal stuff it breaks up the psychology a little bit and it sort of like wraps wraps the reader in which i think is important in a book about well-being but um no i mean i yeah i'm glad that you that you liked it and thank you for having me on this uh on this wonderful podcast i really appreciate it and I, I'm, I'm sorry for the, the occasions where i haven't really made a lot of sense but luckily i've got self-compassion that can uh, that can save me right now <laughs> we all need it yeah. We all need it. Thank you so much, Nick. It was wonderful talking to you. All right. Thank you, Debbie. You take care. Okay. You too. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com.